Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussion of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. Together, <laughs> something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. Now, as the world continues in the grip of a global pandemic, the question of life and death is even more pertinent than usual. As many of us continue in lockdown, we have time perhaps to reflect on some of the more philosophical aspects of both life and death. And human beings have marked births, deaths, marriages or unions and naming ceremonies for millennia in one way or another. And today we speak with humanist celebrant Zina Birch about her role in the marking of these time-honoured rituals. So Zina, one of the first questions that we would like to ask you is what made you decide to become a humanist celebrant? That is a good question because it begins with an accident, which I do tend to think is perhaps all how all the best things in life happen. I, I, I certainly didn't set out to become a humanist celebrant. It, it was most likely something that even for your listeners, you probably never even heard of a humanist celebrant. I was that person too. I had no idea what it was. And I think I discovered it through necessity as opposed to direction. I had been asked to conduct a wedding ceremony for two friends of mine, but they were in a completely different situation. They were in uh, Los Angeles. They knew that they could ordain a friend of theirs legally through the state. And uh, they asked me as their wedding present for them if I would write and conduct their wedding ceremony for them. And in doing so, they, they sort of launched an inquiry for me, which is now over 10 years long. Um, but one which I guess comes down to the desire to do a good job. And I didn't want to mess things up for them. I felt the weight of what they'd asked me to do. And so I very nerdily did a lot of research. So going back to my friends, I I had um, researched a lot about why we hold ceremony, why ceremony is important to human beings, and then sort of consequently, what what makes up a ceremony? I started looking into the, the, you know, surround ritual and tradition, why we have these, whether they're still relevant. Um, It just really sparked a a thousand different inquiries in my mind as I was really just trying to do a good job for my friends. So long story short, uh, I did their wedding ceremony and I came back to the United Kingdom and looked into how to become the kind of person who could carry on doing something like that for people. And my first port of call was a registrar, which in the UK is the legal way in which you can uh, marry people if you're not a religious minister. And interestingly, as I looked into becoming um, a, a registrar, I discovered that so many of the things I'd found so compelling about ceremony and ritual and tradition and acknowledging people's personal intent were actually things that you weren't really allowed to do as a registrar because they were very much the legal alternative to a religious wedding. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, well, there's a gap because if you're religious, you still get to personalise your intent and it's very much about what you believe. But if you're not, then your only option is this kind of legal pathway. And that, that, that doesn't quite seem to be covering all of the things that we need as human beings either. 
months, I then ended up going to a humanist funeral. And I noticed that this ceremony somehow connected everybody to each other. It was so focused around the person who had died, was so focused around the impact their life had had on everyone. Um, So I kind of collared them afterwards and asked them who they were and what they did and how they trained. And they told me about was the British Humanist Association at the time. Right. And so and so it all began. Now, now, Zina, we will come back to some of your ceremonies and the work you actually do a bit later. But perhaps we could just step, take one step back. Um, now, I recently did a, an Are You a Humanist quiz. Uh, and I saw that, in fact, on the Humanist UK website. And indeed, I found that I was a humanist. I'd never thought of myself in that way. But it turned out that I was. So perhaps... Perhaps you could just tell our listeners, what does it mean to be a humanist? And also, what does it mean to you? Sure. I mean, I'm definitely better well-versed to tell you what it means to me than to be the authoritative voice on humanism entirely. Um, But for me, and I think in principle, it's a non-religious term. So to be humanist isn't an alternative faith. It's more of a sort of philosophical stance. And that kind of humanism stance is based on compassion. It's based on empathy. It's as a belief system, I guess it is happy to let science guide and inform our understanding of the world around us. It very much acknowledges the interconnectivity we have with other humans and indeed the natural world around us. It it asks us to be responsible for our own actions, but at the same time have a co-responsibility, I suppose, for the environment and for other people. It's, I think, for me, it's based in tolerance. It's very distinctly not telling someone that what they believe is incorrect. It's opening discourse. That's the part for me which I've always... So I think, yeah, specifically, it's it's about not believing that we get our instructions from a deity or from something supernatural. Right. So actually, this is a Kurt Vonnegut phrase, I think. To do good on this planet and on this earth, because we should, not because we're going to be rewarded in an afterlife. So that, and then I guess that would also keep it fairly distinct from paganism or, or something similar, uh, because, you know, people might think, oh, it's not, it's not religious or it's not organized religion. And then the next sort of, question is oh is there some sort of pagan element but as you said that idea that there's no deity that we look up to uh, in any sense uh, it's very much it comes from ourselves yeah and our understanding of mm. the world that we live in yeah why do you think that there was such a gap for for something like this this philosophy or this how you called it this humanist um, I, I don't want to call it the mindset but some of these ideas that you mentioned well, I, I mean, I think what's what's worth acknowledging straight away is I don't think it's a new thought. You know, it, it certainly has, has, you know, when you look at even, for example, your Dutch um, Humanist Association, they were founded in 1946. The, the um, English one, I think, in the sort of mid to late 1800s. So in that respect, they're quite new. But as a, as a thought process, as an inquiry, um, there have always been people who haven't believed in a god or gods. Um, In terms of filling a gap now, I think it's very interesting. Actually, I had a little look on your association is called, excuse my pronunciation, Humanistisch Verbund. And it's interesting because in some of their opening lines, it was set up after the Second World War. And I, I think there's still a need for acknowledged communities. So perhaps that's what draws people to trying to identify what their you know what their beliefs are and whether they have other people who believe the same things as them or at least a group of people who are going to help inspire them or encourage them to think 
I think what might be good to, to reiterate also for the listeners, because I think you directly touch upon what are some of the drivers of this this humanist mindset or this this philosophy as well, is the sense of belonging and the gathering and, and being able to have your roots somewhere and connect with people. There's um there's a lovely again I'm going I'm giving you your Dutch equivalent for humanistisch for a bond is thinking for yourself living together, and I think that's really important. We have in the West especially been down quite an individualistic course, and I don't know how helpful or how nurturing that is, and I think perhaps we're starting to discover that that it's that we can't be so isolated and individualistic that we, we need to connect, we need to work together. Well, and, and I also think perhaps this pandemic has brought that home to many people. Well, I'm sure you've noticed that uh, as, a, as a humanist celebrant. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I think being stop, uh, stopped in our tracks like this, you realise just how much you need everybody else. Absolutely. So maybe, Zena, we can talk about perhaps more, more a little bit of sort of practicality so that people get a, a greater sense. Uh, you've mentioned the importance of ritual in our lives. Mm-hmm. But as you said, many of us always assume that ritual has to be attached to, to, the, to the church, to the Christian church. Uh, but indeed, um, this is not the case necessarily. Now, you marry couples, you also preside over funerals and, well, what we would know as christenings, but I believe you call them naming mm-hmm. ceremonies. You know, for someone trying to imagine and think, oh, perhaps I would like a humanist wedding, how would that work exactly? How would it be maybe different from the wedding that we are familiar with? Sure. In in each of these ceremonies, essentially what they are are rites of passage. So the reason they're generally the same in most cultures is because they are a rite of passage. The difference, I suppose, from a humanist ceremony compared to a more traditional or religious ceremony is not so much that it's unrecognisable. It isn't. It's not radically different. It's about context and words. In a, in a wedding, it's it's very much about also working with your celebrant it, so that they're not putting words in your mouth and they're not just giving you a script that's been pre-written that you slot nicely into. It's about working and understanding what your intentions are, what marriage means to you, um, and not necessarily what marriage means in general, but specifically to you as a couple. And almost all humanist celebrants work very, very closely to to understand what these things are so that they can be represented. So whereas you're still likely to have very recognisable moments, perhaps just because of film and television as well, but we know that there is an entrance. We know that there is an exchange of rings. We know that there is a kiss. Um, you know, these are moments that that we're so... We're attached to them, aren't we? I think as a, as a, as a celebrant myself, what I tend to do is just ask couples to consider why they're doing those things. That's not to say we're not going to do them. We actually are. But but why? So, you know, once upon a time, you will walk down the aisle by um, the head of the family, which was a, usually a man. And it had a very patriarchal kind of connotation that you as a woman belonged to your father and now you were being handed over to your husband. And that's irrelevant, mostly now Mm. however the action of being walked down an aisle is still something that people love or it might be something that a dad has imagined the minute they had a baby girl and so you don't want to just strip that away for the sake of radical politics you actually want to look at what the intention behind it is you know what we actually then get to do is still keep a tradition but make it relevant and I think a humanist ceremony that kind of is really the nub of it it's about making sure that the intention and the relevance within the ceremony 
you know, has has foundation and basis and it's going to mean more to them. With regards to a naming, that, that is a little bit more interesting because a baptism has a very specific religious reasoning. And, you know, it, it is not necessarily relevant then to bless a child's forehead with water. Holy water. From a font in the shape of a cross. So, again, I would work with parents and ask them to look at why they want to. Um, and usually it's because it's a life changing event having a child. Mm. And it's also a demanding event. And it's also a time when you realize that you cannot do it alone, that you need your support network, your immediate family, your extended family, and often an extended family may not be blood relatives but they're so important to you Mm. there's something very beautiful I think about a naming ceremony as well in that it's allowing and acknowledging that the child is going to be able to choose their own faith or lack of absolutely so Zena what sort of stands out for you if I know it's probably difficult to choose but but just one might that stands out a particular ceremony where you thought wow that was for, for whatever reason that might have been, but just perhaps again, just to give our listeners a flavour of real life example. This, you know, um, sorry, as you asked me this, that this is one of the most difficult things for me to answer. And that actually, yeah, just like a podcast of 122 hours, so I can tell you all the incredible ceremonies that exist. Oh, we, we can definitely... Stay tuned for the other 121 parts of this podcast. <laughs> we, we can definitely share the link. <laughs> Um, I won't promise more than that. <laughs> I'll be I'll be honest, you know, it's it's probably funerals. I think the the one that still to this day stands out so in, extremely for me and probably because of my personal relationship to it was one of my childhood best friends. His wife died of breast cancer far too early. And to celebrate the, the just the sheer existence of her and how she had affected so many of us. It was held in her favourite place, which is a cliff top that overlooked an extraordinary expanse of sea. There was a red top, like a circus tent, to house everybody afterwards. There was a, a festival, music festival, that was designed around it. Um, but the ceremony itself was one of the hardest things I'd ever written. I found that I couldn't write a single word of her ceremony. I I was sat there staring at a blank page and a blank page and a blank page, and I couldn't work out why, when I had so much of her life from so many of her friends, from my my friends, her husband, you know, I had a wealth of stories and so much material to celebrate, but I couldn't even write the first line. And it was because I realised I was so angry. And even though we were all going to this music festival to celebrate her life, I imagined that probably everybody else was having that same stumbling block as me, that we really did want to celebrate her life, but our anger was getting in the way. And so I started the ceremony by addressing that first and acknowledging that every single one of us didn't want to be there um, and that the only person who should be there wasn't. And I got everyone to shout at the top of their lungs. Well, I did want to swear. I wanted to say a very bad word followed by the word cancer. But as her husband reminded me, she actually really didn't enjoy swearing. So we turned it into screw, which I thought was like the the lamest of all of the swear words. So screw cancer. (laughs) And we all shouted it. And and then I asked them to just shout it even louder because that wasn't enough. And, And this expression of raw crossness also had an element of the ridiculous about it. And I think, uh, you know, we laughed and laughter and sadness that, you know, all of these extreme emotions are so intertwined. And 
and and I was you know and from the moment I realized to do that you know the rest of her ceremony just flooded out of me and and we did we celebrated her life and it's many manifestations and and I think that's part of what a humanist ceremony is doing and especially in a funeral it's about understanding what their impact was in our lives because that's the bit that never goes away so their physical presence may be gone now but actually the repercussions of their life are embedded in every one of us and that being able to focus on that rather than talking in a if you don't believe in it it feels like a platitude the idea of going to a better place but actually talking about their existence in this world and how it affected us um, has a really, really good foundation, I think, for where grief needs to travel from. And, you know, none of us can 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 really take away people's grief. And, and there is a tendency, I think, when we are sad or angry or shocked to have emotions in to protect ourselves. But along with that, sometimes comes this repression of the person. You know, we stop telling their stories. We perhaps don't mention their name as much. And actually, I think that's really counterintuitive. You did. Yes, it did. Thank you. even answered some questions we didn't even ask yet. But I think what is what is beautiful is you, um, in its simplest sense, what you said is, I'm just asking, why are we doing certain things? So you explained that in the sense of like the, the weddings, why are we walking down the aisle? And I think in funerals, you, you did exactly the same thing on a bigger scale is why do we celebrate, what are we celebrating or why are we here gathered today? Is that to, to start the grief process is to celebrate that the person is moving to a, a better place and 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 I agree with you in this case, perhaps it's just to grieve together, to share joy, to share, to, to start that healing process and to bring back these memories that we all share and to acknowledge this little nugget that each person has left behind us. I think that's a, a beautiful philosophy. And I'm curious if there are other aspects in, in our life where you see this, this movement might raise other questions as to why we do certain things the way we do and, and where there might be other opportunities for this type of thinking. I think by focusing on, you know, living a life with intention is is really helpful for us as, as human mm. beings. And, and I think I mentioned this to, to someone the other day that it's it's much less about overthinking, which I think is really detrimental to us. And it's much more about just understanding our intention on a day-to-day basis with as little judgment towards ourselves as possible as well, you know remove our inner critic and open our inner you know curiosity I think is is the way to do that and and I think understanding our commonality is really important I think one of the reasons I've been so drawn to humanism and this is me speaking from a personal level is that within my humanism I don't want to judge other people's faith I I think so I don't think we have a right to question one another's faiths or beliefs but what we can question is how we are acting amongst one another in a community how tolerant we are of one another um, and how compassionate we are and how supportive we are I think one of the things that's really lovely actually as an ambassador for the 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 concept of humanism is that in my ceremonies they aren't exclusive you know you can come and attend one of my ceremonies from any belief and not hopefully going to offend or, or, or ask you to challenge or question anything because what we're focusing on is the thing that everyone has in common. So for me, I feel that they're very inclusive and hopefully what they do then is remind one another, regardless of what you know clothes we wear, to use clothes metaphorically, we're all the same people underneath and that's what we need to be focusing on. You know, one of the things that's really brilliant about Humanist UK 
is there are quite a lot of campaigns that they're very active in, which are really just trying to press for equality, where the government is perhaps giving money a little bit more to one religion because it's the state religion, you know, but actually looking at the equality for the communities within the society of the United Kingdom. How do we make lives better for everyone rather than just one group or a couple of groups or some subgroups? So obviously we will we'll share information regarding your, your website, but and you've also mentioned Humanists UK and of course there's the Dutch version um, here in the Netherlands. Uh, is, is there anything, any other place people can go should they want to just get more of a sense of what this is all about? I want to say a really twee answer. Just go outside. <laughs> go <laughs> look around. Go let your brain talk, be still. Talk to people. Let your brain be still and go out into nature and just let it all be a bit of wonder for you. And there's a great book, actually, that um, our chief executive just wrote with a, a brilliant scientist called Professor Alice Roberts. So Andrew Copson and Alice Roberts wrote a book called The Little Book of Humanism. Um, mm, which, I saw that, actually. Yeah, it's a great book. It's one of those books that's um, absolutely brilliant to pick up and put down. And, and I say that in the best way, because you can you can just read sections and not feel like you've not completed the book it's a real kind of dive in and dive out return to underline it you know make a mess of that book write your own thoughts next to it um that that's a really great great sort of starting point I think for understanding humanism Zina thank you so much for joining us today on Stalk Talks uh, absolutely my pleasure and let me know when you want to do the other 121 (laughs) (laughs) well absolutely Zina and I think also uh, no, I, I think I was going to say, I think Zoe said it already. Thank you so much, Sina. It was a, a delight talking to you, really. Uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Um, for everybody else, stay tuned. Uh, we'll be doing another discussion next week, so you can find more information on who we'll have on the Instagram, the Facebook. Uh, follow us on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be back next week. <laughs>